I was uh, thinking this past week, as I was working on the, uh, on the sermon for today, uh, if, a, if a person who was used to the, the liturgical church calendar has been attending our church services over the past month, then they'd probably be very confused by my preaching, because on the first Sunday of Lent, I actually preached in Luke on the passage that covered the triumphal entry. And here we are today on uh, Palm Sunday, and uh, again, the typical day to recognize the triumphal entry, and I'm going to be preaching on crucifixion. <laughs> um, good news is I'll, uh, I'll get it right next week, because on Easter Sunday we're going, to be, uh, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But, um, but as I said, even though today is Palm Sunday and not Good Friday, right, uh, uh, we've come to our journey in Luke's gospel where... Uh, we're in chapter 23, and, and it records Jesus' uh, public trial and his crucifixion and death and burial. And so, uh, you know, this week and, and next week, when we'll be in Luke 24, uh, those chapters are really the focal point of Luke's entire two-volume work, Luke and, and Acts. Um, all of the gospel of Luke flows toward Jesus' death and resurrection. And then all of the book of Acts flows out of Jesus' death and resurrection. So, you know, I, while I, I think that all the sermons I preach are important, there's, there's something uniquely special about preaching or teaching or, or reading the accounts of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so what I want to do today to start us off is I want to read the entire chapter, Luke chapter 23. Um, it's 56 verses long, so it's going to take a few minutes to get through it. But, but I wanted to read it all the way through, and, and my hope is that as we go through this together, that, that we'll find ourselves immersed in the story in such a way that that we're catching on to, to some of the bigger themes that Luke is drawing out for us, things that might be easier to miss if we kind of do it, uh, you know, chunk by chunk or paragraph by paragraph. So, so let's go ahead. We're going to read through Luke chapter 23, and then, and then I'll highlight uh, some of these themes that I see Luke bringing out for us. So chapter 23, verse 1 says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him to, before Pilate. And when they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all, throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. 
Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. 
And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. So even, even though many of us know the crucifixion story so well, I think there's a sacredness that comes with uh, just with reading through the accounts of it in the Gospels. Um, Jesus' work on the cross and, and his resurrection after the cross, again, it, it, it's the focal point of everything for us. And so uh, I said I think Luke is bringing out some, uh, some themes in his account. Uh, the first one that I want to highlight this morning is the innocence of Jesus. I mean, did you catch how many times Jesus' innocence was proclaimed in this account? I mean, there are five different statements regarding Jesus' innocence made by four different people in, uh, in the text today. Um, if you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Tim preached on the Last Supper, uh, spoke about the significance of that Last Supper uh, taking place amidst the Passover celebration. Um, the history of the Passover for God's people it goes all the way back to the time of uh, the Exodus. Uh, the tenth plague that was sent upon the Egyptians was the, the death of all firstborn males. And God, in his mercy upon his people, provided a way to avoid the, the pain and suffering and the death of that final plague. So if his people would gather in their homes sacrifice a spotless male lamb and, and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and lintel, then, then they would be passed over. The firstborns in, in their household uh, would not be killed. Now the lamb to be sacrificed was supposed to be chosen on the 10th day of the month, and then finally it would be sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. And during that time, from the 10th to the 14th day, the people would have been able to examine their lamb to ensure that it was a spotless male lamb, because it was supposed to be a spotless lamb. Now, now a few weeks ago, we, we, we studied Luke chapter 20, and we saw how the religious leaders were questioning Jesus all those times. They were trying to trap him and trick him. Um, and, and every time Jesus responded to their questions in a way which silenced them, but but also, in essence, he, he passed their examination. They were putting Jesus to the test, and he passed. And, and what we saw in today's text, in chapter 23, is, is that I think we see the examination continuing. Not at the hands of the religious leaders this time, but, but this time it's at the hands of the Roman leaders. We ended uh, chapter 22 last week with the religious leaders, they, they found Jesus guilty. They said he was guilty of blasphemy. Um, now, now and they said that because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, 
They didn't think it was a true statement. It was a true statement, of course, but because they didn't hear it as true, they said, well, he's, he's committing blasphemy, and so they found him guilty of that. The problem for the religious leaders was that even though they agreed on these charges that they brought against him, uh, they didn't have the authority under Roman rule to execute someone for blasphemy. So even though they all agreed that Jesus was guilty in their eyes, they couldn't kill him like they wanted to. And even though the Romans did have that authority, the Romans could execute people, they weren't going to do it based on a religious uh, squabble about blasphemy. The Romans weren't going to do that. And, and so maybe you noticed at the beginning of chapter 23 that when the religious leaders brought Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, they don't say anything about blasphemy. I mean, that's a religious charge. I mean, Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. And so what they did is they, they, their accusations changed from being religious in nature to political in nature. I mean, you can look back at what they accused him of in verse 2. Misleading the nation, uh, forbidding the giving of tribute or taxes to Caesar, um, saying that he is a king. I mean, those things would have been of interest to Pilate. And so they changed the charges to, to present him as guilty in, in uh, Pilate's eyes. Now, the interrogation of Jesus that Luke gives to us is very short, very short. I mean, in verse 3, Jesus asks Jesus if he's the king of the Jews, and, and Jesus says, uh, you've said so. And that's all we're given. Now, I mean, we can be confident that the full examination was longer than that, but Luke's focus here isn't on Pilate's questions. That, that's not what Luke is focused on. He's focused on the verdict that Pilate gives. Okay, the verdict in, in verse 4, for the first time, Pilate declares Jesus not guilty. He says he is not guilty of these charges that you've brought against him. I mean, we have to catch the irony in that, don't we? The irony in the fact that the Roman leader, the Roman leader found Jesus innocent, but the Jewish leaders were the ones who had found him guilty and who were pushing for his execution. I mean, that's backwards, isn't it? But that's, that's what was taking place, and Luke records that for us so well. And, and once Pilate proclaimed Jesus innocent, the Jewish leaders objected and brought further charges and says, well, he's not just stirring people up here in Jerusalem and Judea, but, but all over Galilee as well. And, and so Galilee's mentioned, and Pilate thinks, ah, here's a way out, right? Here's, and I can use that, right? I mean, Pilate had found Jesus innocent, but he realized full well that the Jewish leaders wanted him condemned and killed, and so he's kind of in a sticky situation because Pilate's main goal is to keep the peace. He does not want rioting during the Passover, and that's what he's working towards, he wants everybody to get along, pass over to end, and everybody to go back home. I mean, that is Pilate's goal. So when he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, there's an out. Oh, well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. He is the Roman-appointed king of Galilee, so I'm going to send Jesus to, uh, to Herod. We'll let, we'll let Herod deal with the situation, and so that's what he does. Herod also interrogates Jesus. Um, the religious leaders continue their accusations against Jesus, and like Pilate, Herod, Herod found him innocent and so sends him back to Pilate. You can see nobody really wants to deal with this situation, right? You can see that pretty clearly here. And so when Jesus is sent back to Pilate, 
Pilate, for the second time, declares that Jesus is not guilty. And this time he says, and Herod agrees. All right? so, so for the second time, Pilate proclaims his innocence. And then you probably know that uh, what was custom tradition at that time, uh, during Passover, as, as a way for the Romans to keep peace and avoid riots during what could be a tense time, um, it, it was the custom for the Roman officials to release one of the Jewish prisoners that, that they were uh, holding hostage. It's kind of a gesture of goodwill during Passover. Um, and, and in light of that custom, it, it might have seemed obvious for innocent Jesus to be released. I mean, th this is kind of the, the perfect out, in a way, for Pilate to say, well, well you, you know, I'm supposed to release somebody anyway, so here's Jesus. I've, I found him innocent. But instead, everyone cries out that they want Barabbas. They want the insurrectionist and the murderer to be released instead. And so Pilate, you know, kind of pushes them on that. He questions their request. And, and for the third time, he declares Jesus not guilty. But, uh, but again, the, the people just cry out all the louder. Crucify Jesus. Crucify him. And so, again, Pilate's entire goal is to keep a riot from forming. And so probably sensing that tensions were rising and that a riot might form, he says, okay. He says, okay, and he gives into their demands. And so, you know, I think what we can't miss here is that, that the divine Passover lamb was examined thoroughly by the political leaders and was consistently found to be innocent time and time and time again. And then what's more, as the story continues to unfold, his innocence was proclaimed two more times. Uh, the criminal hanging next to Jesus, who, who called out to Jesus in faith, declared that he had done nothing wrong. And then, uh, likewise, the centurion at the cross, who, who helped crucify Jesus, saw everything unfold, and upon Jesus breathing his last, also proclaimed him to be innocent. So, uh, it's almost like, man, did... Just to make sure that the point was driven home, Luke highlighted five different times that Jesus was proclaimed to be innocent. I mean, he, he's making it as impossible as he can to miss the significance of the, the, the correlation with the Passover lambs. Just as those lambs were to be spotless, Jesus was to be as well and, and was found to be spotless. Because if Jesus were not innocent, then, then the whole scene really doesn't mean anything. If he's not innocent, then, then what's the point in it? If, if Jesus could not be a blemished Messiah and take away the sins of the world, he couldn't do that. He had to be the spotless Messiah to take away the sins of the world. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 says that, that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God in order to purify us from dead works. Uh, Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5 that, uh, that for our sake, Jesus was made to be sin so that in him we might, uh, we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin placed upon Jesus and his righteousness placed upon us, but it's only possible if Jesus is sinless, if he's spotless and blameless. So, so the fact that Jesus 
was without sin upon his crucifixion is of utmost importance. It's vital to salvation. And, and Luke makes sure that we, we see, we hear, we know that Jesus was spotless, that he was blameless. He is the true Passover lamb without blemish or spot. So that's one of the themes that, that Luke draws out for us. Another theme that Luke draws out in the final hours of Jesus' life is, is Jesus' fulfillment of the three main offices or, or roles spoken of in the Old Testament. And those, those are prophet, priest, and king. Those are the, the three roles. They, 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 were, they were the three appointed offices that God chose to facilitate his covenant with his people. Prophet, priest, and king. So the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they, they were tasked with speaking God's words to people. That was their role. And, and most of the time, those words were spoken to God's people. Quite often, the prophets were speaking to the Israelites, but, but occasionally to pagan nations as well. There are instances of that. Um, they were to speak God's word. And at times they did that. They, they performed miracles in, in, in order to get people's attention, to listen to the words that they were proclaiming. But that was the role of the prophets. The priests were charged with, with implementing the worship of God within the, the tabernacle and later within the temple. And so they, they mediated between God and the people uh, they were charged with pronouncing forgiveness and cleansing upon a person once the, the required sacrifice and offering had been given. So that was what the priests did. And then the kings, the kings ruled God's people, and, and they brought protection and order to the kingdom. They were to set an example for others to follow. They, they were to see God's kingdom expand through welcoming foreigners and, and sojourners in. And, and, and those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were, were normally distinct from one another in the Old Testament. But in the person of Jesus, all three of them found their perfect fulfillment. All the prophets of the Old Testament were, were foreshadowing Jesus. All the priests, the kings, they were all foreshadowing the one person, Jesus. And all three of those offices, those roles, were on display in the final hours of Jesus' life. And Luke records it for us. So if we look, starting at verse 28, the office of prophet is seen in Jesus' statement. He speaks to the women who were following him and who were mourning for him. And so even though Jesus himself is, is facing incredible physical pain and suffering, he already had, and, and more was yet to come on the cross, even in the midst of that, he knew that resurrection and victory awaited him. I mean, he knew what was in front of him as far as suffering, but he knew what was coming after that as well. And, and so as a result, he warned the women to weep not for him, but for themselves and to weep for their children, who, who would live through a time when, when what was normally considered a curse, barrenness, would actually be considered a blessing. And it's widely agreed that Jesus was speaking about what would come upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. We talked about that a few weeks back, where, uh, where the Romans laid siege to the city, 
and eventually destroyed the city and the temple both. And there are, there are gut-wrenching accounts of during the siege, mothers in Jerusalem making the unthinkable decision of, to eat their children. I mean, I mean, there are accounts of that. I mean, we can't even imagine that, can we? And what Jesus is saying is, weep for yourselves that you're going to live through that, that you're going to be put in that kind of a position when God's judgment comes upon the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You know, mourning shouldn't be directed toward Jesus and the salvation that's going to come through his death and the victory that would come through his resurrection, but rather mourn towards what is coming in the near future on the city of Jerusalem. You see the the prophetic office, the prophetic role that Jesus is taking there, speaking about what's coming in the future. So we see the role of prophet. We we see the role of priest as well. Uh, Verse 34 specifically. Jesus incredibly speaks forgiveness upon those who crucified him. I mean, that, that was the role of the priests, proclaiming forgiveness and cleansing. Even while Jesus is hanging on the cross in tremendous pain and suffering, he never stopped his priestly role of bringing forgiveness to those who needed it. I mean, Jesus taught earlier uh, when his disciples asked him, you know, teach us to pray, and part of the Lord's prayer is, is about forgiveness, right? Forgiveness, forgive those who sin against us. They're not just empty words to Jesus. It's not just something good to pray. He lived that out. He carried that out in his priestly role specifically. And that was on display under the most incredible of circumstances. I think this is one of those times we can, we can look to Jesus and see in him a great high priest who suffered in every way that we have yet was without sin. So how scripture states it, and here he is hanging on the cross, forgiving the ones who physically put him there, the soldiers that nailed him there. I mean, when I struggle with forgiving someone who has hurt me in in some way, I can be assured that Jesus knows how I feel, and doesn't just know how I feel, but yet continued to do what we are called to do, to give forgiveness. So I think when we are in those spots, we can, we can rest in him. We can ask him for the strength that he showed here, that through his working in our lives, we might have that strength as well to, to respond in love and forgiveness when, when we've been hurt so deeply. So prophet, priest, and then king as well. We, we see that in, in, the, in the conversation with the, the two criminals, specifically the second criminal that, that's uh, crucified with Jesus. So the first criminal on the cross is scorning Jesus, and then the second one rebuked him and, and proclaimed Jesus' innocence, like we talked about earlier. And then, and then up, uh, upon this man's request to be brought into Jesus' kingdom, Jesus says, it's going to happen today. You know, this very day you will be with me in the kingdom. The, the perfect king kept expanding his kingdom right up until the very end of his life. One of the last things Jesus did was bring one more person into his kingdom. It's the role of the kings. 
I mean, he, he ushered a repentant sinner into his kingdom on that very day in a way that only he could have done. And so I think what we're seeing in Luke's account here is him proclaiming to us, Jesus is this perfect prophet, this perfect priest, and this perfect king. In the rest of his gospel, we've seen the religious leaders rejecting Jesus' prophecies and re- rejecting his forgiveness and rejecting his claim to kingship. But Luke is affirming to us that, that, uh, that that's, uh, the rejection of the religious leaders was misplaced and misguided, that he truly is all of those things. And it's on display right up until uh, the very end of his life. He fulfilled the roles in a way which no fallen human could ever have done. And under the most strenuous of circumstances to boot, right? I mean, hanging on the cross. And so the question is, how do we respond to that? How will you and I respond in light of all of that? And I think that's, that's the last theme that, that I want to explore today, is, is all the different responses that we see by those present at Jesus' death, because there's quite a few other, uh, other people involved here. And so, uh, you know, uh, last week we, uh, I challenged us to see ourselves in the person of Peter, right? And, and so, in chapter 23, Peter is nowhere to be seen. He's, he's gone, but, but there are three other people whom I'd encourage us to see ourselves in. Um, and, and the first person is, is Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the, the murderer who'd been arrested by the Romans and was probably on his way to serious punishment, um, quite likely death. I, man, I... I I personally think that the switching of places between Jesus and Barabbas is one of the most powerful metaphors in all of the Bible. Uh, but again, I, you know, rather than just read the story and, and examine the story, uh, let's, let's see ourselves in the story. Let's see ourselves in Barabbas' place. Because like him, we're guilty of rebellion. We've rebelled. Every time we sin against God, we're rebelling against him. We, we maybe won't think of it that way, but, but that's what we're doing. Um, and, and we probably haven't committed physical murder. But Jesus says in Matthew 5 that when we're angry with our brother, insult them, speak derisively of them, we're liable to judgment just like a murderer. And yet not out of our own merit or righteousness or anything else that we've done, we find ourselves being shown mercy and set free in place of the innocent Son of God. Uh, I mean, we're given freedom and new life while Jesus is bound and led to death. It's quite the switch that takes place in the account here. And I found myself wondering as I was kind of thinking about this, I wonder what happened to Barabbas. We don't hear anything. Like, what happened? You know, once he was set free, I, did he follow the crowd out to the place of crucifixion to see what transpired? I mean, I feel like if it was me, I, curiosity would maybe get the best of me, and I'd probably 
go along to, to see what would happen. I, you know, I, I don't know. If Barabbas did, did uh, go out with the crowd, what would he have been thinking as he watched Jesus being crucified and eventually dying on the cross that, you know, potentially would, would literally have been his cross? I mean, what, what would he have thought there? What would he have felt in watching that? You know, we, we don't know. Whatever he might have felt, I think, would be good for us to feel as well. Because Jesus didn't just take the physical pain, but, but drank the cup of God's wrath. Did he remember back in Gethsemane, he was so agonizing over this cup that, that lay before him. Man, and he did that so that we could be declared righteous and forgiven. Our freedom came at his expense. Um, he died so that we might live. I mean, the question is, uh, how do we respond in light of that? When we think about ourselves being not really that different from Barabbas, how do we respond in light of what Jesus did? So there's Barabbas. Uh, I think we ought to see ourselves in the repentant criminal who was hanging on the cross next to Jesus as well. Um, we don't know how Barabbas responded to Jesus, uh, but we do know the response of the second criminal. Um, if anybody had a front row seat to what transpired on the cross, it was, it was these two criminals. Um, for the, for the repentant one, we're, we're not told whether he had faith in Jesus before this encounter or not. We don't know what he believed about Jesus when he was crucified. I don't think we're supposed to presume that he did have faith in Jesus before this encounter on the cross. But, but as he watched Jesus suffer innocently upon the cross and then forgive the ones who put him there, it, he was deeply moved. I think that's the only way we can, we can take this. He was deeply moved. His eyes, his heart were opened, and he recognized Jesus for who he really was. So many people in this, in this whole scene missed who Jesus really was, but the repentant criminal did not. He did not. He saw Jesus as the, the true Messiah, and then in his newfound belief, he confessed his sinfulness he defended Jesus to his fellow criminal, and then he called out to Jesus and, and asked him to bring him into his kingdom. So he knew he was sinful, and yet he, he threw himself at the mercy of Jesus. And so again, seeing ourselves in the story, um, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we find ourselves to be sinful. We know that we are. And so will we, like this criminal, throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus? Will we recognize that that is the only thing that we really can do and then ask for his mercy? Will, will, we, will we push aside the, the shame heaped upon us by Satan and humbly call out to Jesus to bring us into his kingdom? It's what this criminal did, and really it's all we can and should do as well. So there's Barabbas, there's the, uh, the repentant criminal, and then I think we would do well to see ourselves in Joseph of Arimathea. Um, just as a little experiment the other day, I, I asked my kids if they knew who placed Jesus' body in the tomb. 
This is one of the joys of being the pastor's kid, right? Um, and I'll admit that's not a very fair question, but uh, that was kind of the point of it, right? I mean, they, they guessed the people I thought they would guess, different disciples. Um, but his disciples are nowhere to be seen in Luke chapter 23. They're not there. Um, they all fled Jesus after the scene in Gethsemane. And, and even Peter, who, who followed Jesus a little bit longer to the high priest's house, he denied Jesus three times and then, and then departed weeping bitterly. So the disciples aren't there. The ones who you think would have stuck by Jesus and been there to, to take his body and put it in the tomb, they're not there. But Joseph of Arimathea is. And Luke tells us that he's a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, we've got to let that hit us. He was a member of the group who so strongly advocated for, the, for Jesus' death, his crucifixion. He, Joseph was part of this group. Now, now, Luke tells us he did not consent with their decision, so he didn't agree with the rest of the group, but he was part of the group. And, and I can't help but wonder, did he publicly state his, his disagreement? Uh, did, he, did he just kind of disagree quietly? Did he, you know, I don't know that they voted. Did he abstain from voting? Did he vote present? You know, I, I don't know. But... Either way, he took a huge risk in the face of incredible opposition to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. I mean, that was dangerous from a political perspective. Who knows what Pilate would do? That was dangerous from a religious perspective. Who knows what his fellow members of the Sanhedrin would do? But he went. He went. He asked for Jesus' body. He put his own position in the Sanhedrin. Maybe even he put his own life on the line in making that request. But he apparently so believed in Jesus that he was willing to risk it all in order to show Jesus the honor and dignity that he deserved after he had been dishonored again and again and again. He publicly made his allegiance known when it would have been very risky to do so. And what a great challenge there is in that, isn't there? I mean, let's see ourselves in the spot of Joseph of Arimathea. Are we willing, in the face of danger, to proclaim our allegiance to Jesus? Will we show him honor when it's risky for us to do so? And it's risky nowadays, isn't it? I mean, our culture, our society, it's, it's more and more risky to do that kind of a thing. Seems to be more opposition to allegiance to Jesus today than, than there's been in previous decades or centuries in our context. So the question is, are, are we prepared to take a stand and make it known that we serve Jesus? You know, it seems that the crucifixion of Jesus maybe encouraged or em emboldened Joseph of Arimathea to do just that. And so my, my hope is that, that our our reading of Jesus' crucifixion today, our, our, our time spent contemplating it, will have that same impact on you and me, that we will be more, more likely, more, more emboldened to proclaim our allegiance to him, even in the face of, of danger and risk. Um, so we've spent... We've spent a lot of weeks in Luke's gospel thus far, um, 30 in case you're counting, 30 weeks we've spent in Luke's gospel so far. Man, I'm glad we've got one more 
Because if, we, if, this, if this was the end of the story, if it stopped right here, it'd be 30 weeks that we would have just wasted. Um, would have not been a story worth telling. It would have definitely not be a story worth dedicating our lives to. But we've got one more week. There's, there's yet more to the story. And so next week we get to gather together and, and fall back in line with the liturgical calendar. Um, uh, man, uh, we get to, to celebrate, to celebrate the, the creation-altering event that took place on the Sunday after Jesus' death. You know, there, there were supernatural events taking place during Jesus' crucifixion. There was the, the darkening of the sun. There was the tearing of the curtain in the temple from top to bottom. Um, uh, that all calmed. I mean, ch- chapter 23 kind of ends with a calm, right? The, the, the Sabbath is coming. They do what they can, but then the Sabbath arrives and they rest. And so the supernatural occurrences kind of pause but then on the day after that, the, the supernatural event of all supernatural events takes place. And how blessed we are to get to celebrate that. And, and we could celebrate that every Sunday, every day for that matter, but especially next week on Easter Sunday, we get to reflect on that wonderful truth and the victory that comes with that. And so I would encourage us as, as we prepare to come back together next week, um, to take time between now and then to, uh, to dwell upon all that took place in the final week of Jesus' life, especially the final hours of his life. And I think as we do that and, and, and just allow that to, to permeate our, our thoughts over the week, that we, we will come back ready to gather next week and worship our crucified but risen Savior, because that, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. That, that's what it's driving toward. He won the victory, not just on the cross, but through his resurrection. It was, it was made evident and would then be proclaimed throughout the world after that. So we get to celebrate that, again, every day and every Sunday, but next week especially. There's kind of a, a specialness to it, isn't there, on Easter Sunday. So let's stand together and again, let, let's, let's praise the one who went through all that we just read about. It's not just a story, a good story, a great story. It's the creation-altering story and event that took place. And so let's praise God for that. Jesus, we are... Uh, we are thankful, we are appreciative, we are humbled, we are challenged. There's, uh, there's so many responses that, that we feel within ourselves as we contemplate your, your arrest, your trial, and your crucifixion and your death. There's so much going on there, and, and in some ways we just touched on the high points this morning God, we, we worship you and we praise you because of your love for us that is so evident in your giving of your life. We thank you for what that means for us individually and personally. We thank you for what that means for us as a local church. 
We're thankful for what that means for all who are in your kingdom. God, I pray that as, as I and as we go throughout this week, that we would just be consistently thinking about dwelling upon this last week and hours of your life, and that we would come back ready to praise and ready to worship your, you for your resurrection. And God, even now, as we continue to worship through song, we worship you not just for your resurrection, but for your crucifixion as well. And even though so many have stumbled on that throughout history and rejected you because of it, I thank you for how you've opened our hearts and opened our minds that we might come to, to hear and understand and believe in who you are. And for anyone here today that, that has not come to that place yet, I pray that you would show them yourself more this morning. That they would come to, to know you, to accept you, to worship you for who you are. God, we give you the praise, and we thank you, and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.